Welcome back to the Student Physio Podcast. So we've been away for a while, we've changed up the platform slightly and this is our first recording on Riverside. Um, the three of us have had a, a pretty busy summer. Um, lads, do you just want to give us a bit of an update on what's happened? Uh, yes, so um, we both graduated obviously, um, out in the real world now. Um, I currently have a job within the NHS, well, pending start. Um, Day, but yeah, that's secured now, and I've just started a second role with Oakley Rugby Club, um, just working as a physiotherapist for them as well. Yeah, and then for me, obviously graduated, um, and then was lucky enough to go away travelling with uh, Lewis, actually, uh, over in America, and then once we came back from that, I've just been um, job, job searching, basically, um, uh, looking around for jobs, going to interviews. Uh, I'm not quite there yet with uh, being employed like Brad is, but Hopefully, uh, I will be soon. Happy days. And, uh, yeah, but on me, I'm going into my final year now, so I'm playing catch-up on the lads. Um, so, episode 21 of the Student Video Podcast. Um been a while since we've recorded an episode. We've been quite busy on Clubhouse. Um, so this week, we're primarily going to be talking about the lads and, and their dissertations. So, we're going to try and dissect both of them, two very different um, topics, so this will this will give us quite a good range on on what we're going to talk about. Um, but before we get stuck into the episode, we just want to sort of spot. Um, this episode's brought to you in partnership with Neonic Training Solutions. Um, Neonic are a new sponsor of the Student Physio Podcast. Neonic offer bespoke training and placements for healthcare professionals and medical students across the UK. They're based in Shipley in West Yorkshire and have a fantastic facility to accommodate for a wide range of learning needs. They also offer physiotherapy treatment to the public with a free consultation and five follow-up sessions amounting to a total of £20. If you're interested in an elective placement as a healthcare professional or student, contact Neonic at support at neonic.co.uk. So lads, getting stuck into this episode, um, do you want to give sort of a brief um, overview on what your dissertation topic was, how you got to it, and a little bit of background into the topic, if we start with you, Brad? Uh, yes, yeah, so I took the um, the subject of using like, technology um, within stroke re- rehabilitation. So mine is all about virtual reality and how that can be used within stroke rehab to not only just work as um, a therapy adjunct and improve function, but more on how it can affect the mental health and well-being of patients post-stroke. So there's a lot of use of virtual reality in like a psychological rehab way, especially for like PTSD um, and a lot of like coping strategies, but it hasn't really been ruled in for stroke so I kind of took this opportunity to conduct a literature review looking at whether it did have a positive impact um, on a lot of different aspects of mental health um, and patients post-stroke. And so the the kind of process that um, that we, we undertake is that we kind of do a bit of a, a research proposal first of all before you get into final year and then you get stuck into it um, in your final year. From that research proposal where it's quite sort of background heavy, what sort of things do you find in your initial sort of research? 
Um, well, there was a, a few different studies that had looked um, at virtual reality with stroke, um, having quite a lot of different um, gradients of what they were covering. So I kind of knew there was going to be some sort of um, like literature there. I wasn't 100% set on what my question would be, but I knew it would have some aspect of mental health and well-being, some aspect of virtual reality, and obviously it would um, be around stroke patients. But like you said, from my initial um, like background searches, my question developed a lot, what I was looking at, my aims, they developed and changed a lot, and it, they developed to suit the literature that was out there. So I think that's one good tip straight off the back, that you need to be adaptable and you need to kind of change what you're doing to suit the literature. Um, in terms of what was out there, um, I knew in from 2012 they did quite a big systematic review on stroke care and there was, oh, with virtual reality, sorry, um, and there was nothing on psychological interventions or how it affected patients psychologically, so I knew that I was really working in like the last 10 years um, of research, so following that up, I found quite a lot of different stuff on acute, chronic, um, subacute, and how they all played into each other. And just before I move on to Connor, I suppose the obvious question is why specifically virtual reality? What was the interest behind choosing virtual reality as, as the sort of topic? Um, so I think this originally stemmed from um, we had a we visited a, a, practice, a private practice called Motion Rehab, which is just in Leeds with one of our university lecturers. Um, and it kind of opened a new door in terms of stroke rehab for me because we've kind of had all the traditional stuff that we've been taught in lectures. But then I just saw how technology was being used in stroke rehab and how it was so effective and it wasn't really readily available for everyone. So not everyone can afford to go to these private clinics that have all these up-to-date VR and robotics machines that can really enhance stroke rehab. So I kind of wanted to look into that and see how effective it was and what sort of benefits it did have with another one of my interests, which is mental health. And then, Connor, come to you, you, you've chosen a very different topic. Do you want to give us a bit of insight into what you chose and why you, why you went down this path? Yeah, so um, probably the only similarity with Brad's is that I did a systematic literature review as well, but my title was... Uh, Effectiveness of musculoskeletal screening methods in determining injury risk in male adolescent football players at elite level. Um, so basically, I chose the title because um, it matches my uh, ambition of working within sport. Um, and it was a realization that I would be working with the younger age groups to start off with. So that kind of links to why I had the adolescent age group in there. Um, so there, there was a different, a few different topics that came up for me when we, we were doing our research proposal, like Lewis mentioned earlier. But this one kind of had the, seemed to have the biggest demand with respect to the research when when I was doing my scoping searches. Um, and I guess it, I, I, personally, I feel that it's massively important that you know we try to reduce injury risk in adolescents and even younger than that because children often don't know better of how to help themselves in terms of injury. Um, and it's not typically a stage where uh, young athletes are specialised in and they might be in academies, things like this. And 
personally, injury was something that kind of held me back uh, in football. I felt um, I probably wasn't good enough either. But um, uh, so I, I feel like if we can help to reduce injury in 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 other you know young people, it will give them the best opportunity to be out on the pitch and then give them the chance to you know really go as far as they can. Um, so I guess that's probably the rationale for me choosing what I chose. So I suppose kind of the the very crux of both topics is that you know if you're choosing something choose something that you're interested in um you know i remember sort of last year having the conversation of you know it's a really long process from effectively from april of one year right through to sort of may the following year um if you're doing a year of something that you're not interested in that's going to make for a very long a very long arduous process isn't it I'd massively echo that, yeah. yeah Do pick something that you're really interested in because it's no joke uh, how involved you have to be with that topic, how much reading you have to do on that topic. Um, above all else, do something that you're interested in because that will get you through the times when, you know, I'm really not motivated today to do it. You just go back to that, why am I doing it? Uh, you know, you know what, what? what's the purpose behind it? And it will motivate you to get through those times where you perhaps don't have the motivation to get stuff done yeah and Brad do you have any sort of thoughts on that as well yeah yeah I think like Connor said there's a lot of reading to do and you need to read your papers several times and you're going through and rereading them and re-highlighting them and picking out different things and for me because I had an interest in the subject when I was kind of getting my results and collating them it was quite exciting it was like oh this actually means something i can tell i can talk to people about this because it actually interests me but from some friends who were kind of struggling with the topic they've chosen and try actually having like being inspired to do it they just couldn't find the motivation because it didn't excite them it didn't like draw them in didn't give them that motivation that connor was chatting about and i suppose before again to a little bit more detail within the two topics Connor, you're obviously in the process now of applying for jobs. Have you been able to come back and sort of draw back on the fact that you've done some research in the area that you're looking to to actually work in and be able to reference that in your interviews? Yeah. Um, so obviously, obviously, with mine being the adolescent age group, that's really handy for working in the academy sort of setting. So um, I am. Uh, using the fact that I did my dissertation on that sort of topic to the maximal amount in the interviews, obviously. Um, and I feel like it's really helped me to understand the research base behind um, you know, musculoskeletal in that academy kind of age group, what is and what isn't effective a lot more. So I'm, I'm really glad that I've done it because it's given me that sort of re research knowledge behind it. I've got the... Um, practical idea in the sense that I've done placements I know what it looks like visually but the research side of things and the you know the more data side of things I've got a bit, bit more of an idea now so yeah it's made me a bit more confident. I think it also shows a willing as well like you're not just applying for these jobs because you want to work in sport you dedicate the last two years of your research project to this as well so it definitely shows that you have a keen interest in this and you're able to produce high quality work in this area. Yeah definitely so Connor, delving into yours in a little bit more detail, um, 
I think your topic's really interesting, uh, largely because of we did the podcast with Tom Hughes, and he's got published research on pre-screen or pre-season screening tools, and that kind of fits. Um, it's, a, it's in the same sort of pathway as yours. It gives a quick rundown of what a functional movement screening process actually looks like. Yeah, so a typical musculoskeletal screening will, will normally involve uh, sort of different functional movements that allow a physio or strength and conditioning coach to see or measure different parameters that might act as predictors for injury. So just to kind of give an example of that, it, it, it might be that they get you to do a, a single leg hop for distance and then they'd measure the distance and cross-reference this with uh, your teammate scores, other research, or against the other limb and come up with a perhaps a symmetry index. That's something that I've seen is, is heavily used in research as well to determine what the score is and if that would leave you at low or high risk or medium risk of injury in the future. Um, and then typically you'd group more than one of these different tests together and that would help to be a bit more rigorous in testing for that injury risk. So um, it, it, something that I've kind of learned from doing the research is that that is quite a theory, it's a theory that you can do this. And I think we're starting to learn now that, you know, the amount of different parameters that you actually would need to measure um, and the complexity of the different parameters that you need to measure to actually determine injury risk is quite a lot more complicated than just watching someone squat and seeing how much valgus they've got. Uh, prediction injury is very, very complicated because you're trying to obviously uh, estimate if something's going to happen in the future and that's not always uh, as cut and dry as we kind of try and make it out. So it's kind of humbled my estimations of predicting injury as well uh, and what's actually possible. Um, but we still obviously try to do it anyway. And by sort of humbling, do you mean that you know don't take the don't take the data as gospel? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Um, I guess it's like with everything; it's no one answer fits all. It's you have to put together a lot of different uh, things, whether it be visual. You know, it's how the player feels psychologically, what their movement looks like, their fatigue levels. It's not just in that screening, what were their numbers? Um, and then that, you know, that's going to determine whether they get injured or not. It's it's a lot more than that. And But obviously we know for this uh, systematic literature review that I carried out, I can't, it, it would have been a very big research review to have looked at every single parameter. So you know, for obvious reasons, I only was able to look at that screening side of things. Um, but I think if we could bring together all different aspects in a, in a research paper, you know, that would make for something pretty special. And, and I know um, Dr. Tom Hughes that we spoke to before is um, a real pioneer in that in that area. And every time he brings something new out, it's like, you know, really eye opening because we're now talking about AI and um, computers to measure all the parameters and you know it's getting to real complex um, areas yeah I just wanted to jump in there I think there's quite an important point that you just uh, raised there Connor um, about like the scope of your research question and I think this is something that can catch a lot of students out especially if you're at the master's level like we were at is trying to encompass too much within your research question and not actually answering the research question so, for example, with mine, I had an 8,000-word dissertation thesis to write, 
and obviously you can include quite a lot of um, information in there and you can cover quite a large scope in quite a lot of detail. But then when you try and translate that into the, lit um, the literature review like journal article we had to do, that's only 3,000 words that we were allowed. So there is no way that I can translate all 8,000 words effectively into, you need to consider the scope. Can you answer your title? Can you cover all your aims? Do you realistically think you can do that? And I didn't, so I changed my title for my journal article. And rather than looking at all mental health and well-being, I just looked at symptoms of depression and other psychological impairment, because that was just a tiny aspect of my whole thesis, but it meant that I could comprehensively cover every single point that I wanted to that was involved in that title and that was involved in the aims. So I think that's just a very good point to actually like reflect on and think, have I actually covered everything? Can I cover everything? Is there anything I'm missing here? Yeah, I would definitely agree with, with what you've both said there in that I'm kind of at that stage now um, where <laughs> a couple of months ago when you're kind of putting an idea together like, we were sitting in the kitchen corner and I had like all these ideas written down of pretty much the same topic, but it's like, how can I make this as simple as possible? You know, you think, oh, 8,000 words is a lot to write, but once you actually get in the nitty gritty of it, you know, they're going to be eaten up pretty quickly. And, you know, meetings that I've had with my supervisor have been largely around, you know, you've got a decent idea here. How can you make this? as basic and as simple as possible for for me you know in terms of whenever it comes to narrowing searches down you know you you just want such a small pool of what you're working with to make life as easy as possible for for you yeah it kind of goes the other way doesn't it so we're saying pick something that you're really really interested in you know don't fall into the trap of just picking any topic because um, you won't get enough words, you won't have enough to write about it, you won't be interested in it. But then if you do pick something you are really interested in, you have to almost hold yourself back or really refine the topic because if you can't, if you, if you include everything you were really interested in, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible to meet the criteria of, you know, at the end of the day, someone's got to market and give you a, a score. You wouldn't be able to um, produce something that was, was good enough. So, yeah, definitely echo what Bradley said there, you know, really refine it get it down to a T, make sure that you're going to answer the question that you're asking. Don't make it too complicated that you can't get all the information into the amount of words that you're limited to. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose then, <laughs> moving on a little bit, um, obviously both of you have done a, a systematic review. In terms of the methodology process that you both undertook, um i i read both journal articles and both are relatively similar but but there are a few differences brad do you want to go through a little bit of the the process that you went through in regards to your methodology uh yeah so i initially carried out just some background searches that was just to make sure there was sufficient evidence in the actual area um and you can kind of learn from these background searches so like you, you have to write a background. Um, so those initial searches can like help you find out. So like um, depression post-stroke was 31% of patients, which is like nearly a third. So that kind of just really spurred me on to know that I was kind of on the right lines. 
Um, after you've kind of carried out your background searches and while you're doing this, you need to be picking out keywords. So like for me, mental health, depression, stroke, virtual reality, they're all things that can like go into my different search terms. And you need to look at what relevant papers are using for their keywords. So it might be neurological rehab instead of stroke rehab, and that's why I'm not getting loads of papers come up when I'm searching. So it's it's good to actually look at what words and the phrases and the terminology that the other papers um, are using. Um, you need to decide on some databases. So this can be through trial and error, whether you just keep searching on the different databases to see if there's anything relevant, or if you use like a guise, so for health, like healthcare ones. Um, then I kind of came to formulating my search terms. So I use the SPIDER framework. A lot of people might be uh, familiar with the PCOS um, one, but as I was looking at mental health, I knew it was going to be quite a lot of qualitative data. So um, I found um, some references working with my supervisor and Cook et al in 2012 found that if you are using um, qualitative data and you want to get more search results, then the spider search strategy could be better for you. Um, so that's what I went ahead with. Um, then I had to formulate inclusion and exclusion criteria. These are constantly changing, by the way, so it's not like you need to start uh, set these at the start. I initially found it quite hard to set these because I didn't really know what the research was going to say. So for example, I wanted to do acute stroke and just focused solely on how it affects acute stroke because I thought comparing it would be quite hard, um, but there wasn't enough research. There was only two papers and I can't do a whole review on two papers, so I had to open it to oil of stroke and that had its own challenges, but um, I'll give you an example of um, an inclusion criteria or exclusion criteria because I know some students can find it quite hard to come up with these. So one of mine was con uh, the studies had to contain a validated outcome measure that assessed depression or other psychological impairment. And that's my way of actually comparing and giving values to what I've been found. So if I had the paper, it didn't actually have any outcome measures. All it's saying might be very relevant, but it's not actually giving me any results. So it was very hard to compare. So that's the sort of things you should be thinking for for your inclusion criteria. Uh, what else? Oh, so whittling um, the papers down after your searches. So I'll just quickly go through that. So I initially had 403 papers. Um, you need to remove your duplicates from there. Um, this left me with 209. Um, and then what I did was quickly read through all the titles. Is this title relevant to your search? If it is, include it. If it isn't, get rid. Um, and if you're not sure, read the abstract. Um, you need to read all the abstracts of the ones you included anyway. Um, and then that, after you've done that process, I only had um, like 10 papers. I put them against my inclusion and exclusion, um, which removed four, and then I went on to full text. Um, and I didn't actually have to remove any at that point. So I had my six papers that I included in my review. Or a bit, bit long-winded, but that was all my methodology. Yeah, Connor, and then sort of go back through your process was slightly different. Do you want to go through that first? Yeah, I'll, I probably won't be able to fill in any gaps. To be fair, Brad did a pretty conclusive uh, outline of what what goes on. So, 
uh, originally I, I planned to do a meta-analysis. Um, me being me trying to do the, the, the best and the most difficult thing. Um, so I intended on doing that early on. Um, and the process would have been a lot more extensive and it would have been, you know, sort of a higher level of research. Um, but for the, the data that I was finding in, in, the, in the papers that I'd chosen, it, it wasn't homogenous. So um, if you don't know what that means, it's the paper, the, the data in there wasn't as similar enough. So the way it was analyzed, the data that was used and the way it was measured wasn't similar enough across the, the papers that I'd found to then do a meta-analysis. Um, apart, aside from the um, uh, aside from the fact that my um, supervisor probably wouldn't have been best placed to be able to help me with that as well, so I would have had to seek, seek extra advice. So, um, realistically, uh, in a university setting, when you're when you're doing a, a bachelor's or a master's, a meta analysis is is, is very rare uh, and normally not possible. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of. Um, I had to leave that one at the door, leave my ego at the door as well, probably as well. Um, so just to kind of really briefly sum it up as well, um, just in case, uh, you know, just to try and fill any gaps if Brad didn't cover any. So you carry out all the scoping searches, confirm the title you're going to go with, complete your ethics, send that off. And normally if it's a systematic literature review, you won't have any problem. It will get back straight away and it won't be, it won't be a problem. Finalize your searches, and then from there, read through the articles by title, abstract, full text, and then you're going to determine, determine which ones you're going to go with for your systematic review. So I had to alter my title slightly and, and search slightly as I went on um, to elite-level male players um, just to get a good enough search results. Um, and then once I'd selected the papers, you obviously read through them thoroughly, analyze those papers, um, for me, it was picking out the screening methods that we used in each different paper. So I think there was, uh, I had six papers all in all. Um, and across those uh, six papers, I had 21 different uh, screening methods that we used. So it's then a case of, right, so which ones are used across all those papers? And then which ones are the same across those papers to then compare across the different papers, the same screening method and the effectiveness of that method across the papers. <laughs> I don't know if I can put that any more simply. Uh, so yeah, lots of um, paper all over the desk, lots of post-it notes, lots of highlighting, um, but you just gotta kind of plow on because once you've got past that stage and you've kind of got your head screwed on with what's where and who's used what and comparing across, that really helps you to, to crack on with the analysis side of things and get some words down on the page um and then and then yes yeah, so writing is really just a literary reflection of that analysis process so once you've got that nailed down if you can get that down in words yeah you're on the home straight kind of thing that was a pretty comprehensive overview from the both of you there in terms of that sort of you finished that methodology process or you finalized your, your paper. So, Brad, you said you got from 400-odd down to six. Those papers that you finalized on, what what were the quality of those papers like and how did you go about sort of determining the quality of those papers? Yeah, so um, to determine the quality, you need to use a critical appraisal tool. Um, for me, I like using CASP. Um, 
it's just the most the one I'm most familiar with. I don't think there's any right tool to use. I think the most important thing is that you understand what the critical appraisal tool is asking and that you're familiar with it and that you're confident with using it because it's only as good as the user. So you need to make sure that you actually know what you're doing. Um, there is like, for me, I like cast because there's little questions and the little questions are like prompts to me and when I'm reading from a paper, it can kind of give you a bit of a boost of this is what I'm sort of asking because some of the questions can be quite broad. Um, a lot of people tend to use sign um, and that as a whole like separate sheet that gives you loads of prompts. So um, both of them are good to use, it's just up to you. Um, yeah, I went through the critical appraisal process and then I applied um, a sign level of evidence to each one because uh, CASP doesn't really have um, a way of grading um, like how good the quality was. I had some that were sort of a reasonable quality. I didn't really have any that were like a very good quality. Um, and then I had some that the methodology was a little bit questionable and I still included them because I wanted to basically show that this is quite an upcoming area. Um, there's not much research in the sort of area that I was looking at. So I felt like all the papers should get their like points raised but when I was raising those points, I made sure to say that this paper didn't really have the methodological quality that we would like, so these results need to be interpreted with caution because there were some questionable things or some things that might have introduced bias in the paper, so you really need to like pick up on that and don't just say, oh, it's a low quality. You need to be saying why and what implications this actually has um, for your literature review because you're including this. Um, I think one good way, um, like Connor just said, was the highlighting. When every single time I read through my papers, I had a different um, highlighter color for everything. So it might have been this could go in the background or this could go in the methodology. And one of them was critical appraisal. And if I heard something was only single blinded, give that a highlight, write a little note saying this is single blinded, it needs to go in critical appraisal. And then when you actually come to do your critical appraisal, everything's highlighted for you. You just go and find the yellow highlighter and it's it's much, much easier that way. One thing I did just want to, to jump in on um, as well with kind of like the quality and how you get your information out of the papers is the difference between data extraction and data synthesis. So I originally thought this was just one um, thing. Um, I kind of went through and made my data extraction table and I was very happy with everything I'd done like right I can get to writing but the data extraction is sort of taking all the information that you think is relevant um, out of the papers and displaying it in a table so for me this might have been like what sort of um, virtual reality they use so it might have been Nintendo Wii console or Xbox Connect um, for example then the data synthesis is what does that actually mean for your question so it might be looking at the outcome measure scores and comparing them um, across like the start and the finish. Did they actually improve anything? So you actually need to do these two separate um, processes and that's how you're going to get the sort of higher grades because you're not just taking the information out and repeating it. You're sort of generating your own information and your own conclusions and it really helps your discussion because all your talking points from your data synthesis. And 
Connor, again, that's pretty comprehensive in terms of of that process. I'm right in saying that you used sign for your critical appraisal, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, just personal preference, really. Um, but a really good uh, tip, I don't know how widely known this is about, but with the sign, um, I actually spotted that they have a study design algorithm. So if you're struggling to kind of identify what um, study design that paper is that you've got in front of you, if you use that algorithm, it will help you to kind of work your way through um, and identify the research methodology so that when you're coming to label it and use the specific sign um, critical appraisal tool, it makes sure that you're using the right one. And if you use the wrong one, it can really send you down a bit of a... Um, a path that you don't want to go down so that kind of makes sure that you're picking the right algorithm and once you've got the right uh, critical appraisal um, type say for example systematic review or RCT then you can um, really delve into the paper and appraise it um, um, this might take you a little bit of time because like Brad said once you've got that nailed on that helps you to really um, appraise that paper, identify its strengths, identify its weaknesses, and give it an overall kind of uh, level of quality. Um, uh, so in my uh, dissertation, the highest level was like two plus plus, and the lowest was two minus. I also use the sign kind of level of evidence thing as well. Um, and at times it is quite difficult to assign that that level, that number as well, because you know it's subjective. If I gave it to Lewis or Brad, they might put one above or below so you just have to really make sure you've got that um locked in really read it really make sure that you're appraising it well and then just go with your your gut instinct on what what level you think it is and then like brad then mentioned you create in that that table um that that table there that brad was talking about the um, data extraction table can be quite extensive um so you can have quite a few different columns on there um so you might have uh like the citation of the paper you've got and the title, the level of evidence from your grading system. And then it might be things like if, if they've used any funding, the screening methods for me, if they've used it, the measure of effectiveness, which obviously you then I then had to compare against each paper. And then uh, the average age the, of participants they had, uh, if they use statistics and what type, sample size, so how many people in the papers, and then did they overall determine injury risk and then, like I've mentioned, underneath that, um, in your data synthesis, that's when you start talking about it um, with words. So you're collecting the data from the, each paper, you're synthesizing it in a table, and then you're writing about it below. And if you can do that well, like I've mentioned, you're going to get decent marks because it's all about that analysis and synthesis of complex information that gets you the good marks. Excellent. I'm sure that will be useful for, for many people out there and even throwing those wee tips in around science stuff is is really good. So moving on then to, I suppose probably the fun part of it, if there is a fun part, is looking at sort of the findings of those papers. Um, so Connor, do you want to go through some of the findings that that you had come out with? Yeah. Uh, you talk about the fun part. Uh, sometimes it isn't when you get to the bottom, and it's not what you kind of expected. And yeah. what you know, we you talk about um, 
people, the reviewers and having a bias. Um, obviously, I, I did it with a very neutral head, but at the back of your mind, you've always got something that you think it might come out with. So my review kind of found that uh, from the papers that I'd um, synthesized that the screening methods might not be effective in determining injury risk, but I, it doesn't discount their ability to be used as an objective marker, for example, so collected prior to the season or um, when the player's at maximal fitness and then use it as a measure to get the, the player back to when when and if they get injured sort of thing. Um, and like I mentioned, my title that I investigated might not have, may have had a different outcome to if I'd have done a different title. So I know now they're using the GPSs that the players wear, corroborating that with other data, um, whether it be wellness scores and, and things into a program. And then that can give a more accurate measure of uh, risk of injury. Um, but obviously, I didn't look at that. I looked at the raw basics. I was looking at the, the screening, the musculoskeletal screening. So that's right back to basics. You know, it's how does someone move um, the centimeters that they jump? Um, so, yeah, so uh, the papers that showed the most promise or, or the, the screening methods, should I say, that showed the most promise as being statistically relevant were the knee to wall, uh, the tuck jump assessment, uh, and the single leg hop for distance, as well as the functional movement screen. So that kind of sums up the main findings of, of my paper. And Brad, what, what sort of findings were you coming out with? Um, yes, yeah, so obviously the stage of stroke, um, which we'll probably come on to in a little bit, um, matters a lot. So your rehab potential changes um, as you get further down the line. So when we were looking at different interventions, it was quite hard to compare the effectiveness of it at an acute stage, at a subacute stage, and at the chronic stage. Um, not only that, but they were all using different VR, they were all using different um, like intensities, different um, frequencies and lengths of the, the VR, so it did make it quite difficult. But as a general theme, um, it it really does have um, a positive impact on psychological well-being. So it may not have always been reductions in depression that were significant, but it may have been um, like a slight reduction in depression and a significant reduction in anxiety or like self-care may have gone up, um, ability to com um, complete their own ADLs, less reliance um, on like their caregivers. Because I think one of the big things is when these, um, patients have post-stroke depression, obviously their life's been turned upside down. And post-stroke depression is often related to an increased um, hospital stay, increased mortality rate, um, lower cognitive function, um, and just a general lower rehab potential, which obviously leads to the higher dependency. So it was really good to see that actually as a result of this VR intervention, we were actually reversing those things and people were getting like more self-efficacy. They were like realizing what was going on. They were having better cognitive function. So it was like really exciting to see. I think some of like the drawbacks, because um, like one of the studies compared it with robotics and robotics had way better functional um, outcomes, maybe not the, uh, the psychological outcomes, but the functionality it was shown that it can be better elsewhere, so it means that VR may not be a 
like sort of one um, shoe fits all sort of approach. It might just be another adjunct that we can use um, rather than VR is going to completely reform stroke rehab. It might be just that if we realize that a patient is struggling with um, psychological impairment, that we give them a sort of a quick um, VR um, like rehab um, schedule just because we know that it may not increase their function, but it will have those psychological benefits for that patient. Um, one of the, the other things that I was going to say about this was how inclusive it was. Um, so one of the studies that I looked at had um, patients with aphasia, so that's um, problem speaking. Um, and obviously, that's quite a hard study group um, if you're going to conduct research on people that have got problems with communication. So I just, it just showed the, um, like the versatility of VR so that this, not this group that's usually left out of all research and isn't really included because they're really hard to work with, they were able to complete a VR um, research project that went on for six months in that study. Um, and they actually all got loads of improvements. So it just shows that this is definitely an adjunct that we can be using with a lot of stroke patients in the acute and subacute and the chronic stage that are going to have benefits. And there's so many variations of it that definitely can be possible. Just a quick point before I ask another question about about your findings there. Connor, you mentioned about the sort of statistical significance of of some of the tests, and I think <clears throat> statistics is is probably an aspect that students would struggle with more than more than any. Um, I certainly find that in my year that that statistics is quite hard to get to get your head around. Um, just for anyone listening, a good video that I came across the other day on on Twitter on Aspator's account is a presentation by Rod Whiteley. Um, and it's basically called how how to lie in sports medicine using statistics, and he kind of goes through how you know the p value is quite a difficult thing to get your head around, but it's not sort of the crux of everything in that how a lot of research is conducted to fit what the journal article wants in their paper. So you might want to go down one path um, to get the result that you feel like this is what needs to be published. But that might not necessarily align with what the journal article is looking for. And, and he says, you know, you get so many papers that get submitted that get rejected until you get the one that that article wants to accept. And he was talking about how p-value and, and those results can play a big effect in that and how some papers that might not appear to be statistically significant because there's maybe less papers or there's less participants involved in it might actually be more statistically significant, but due to the sheer volume of data that's that's present in that paper, makes it appear that it's less statistically significant. So it's quite a good little um, video. It's only 10 minutes, and then I think you can go onto their YouTube and get something a bit more extensive, but it's, it's a good watch just for getting your head around that. No, I think that's definitely a, a really good point to raise, Lewis. I think a lot of people in our year struggle with statistics as well. And you kind of raised the second point that echoed Connor there. So um, that, like, coming in with preconceptions. So obviously, if these researchers can only get their paper published, if it sort of meets the criteria for an article, there's obviously 
bias there. And I think this is what some of the lecturers are really looking at when you're writing your dissertation. They want you to come in and be absolutely neutral, sitting on the line, sitting on the fence, and looking at both sides. So for, for my example, I obviously really wanted BR to be effective. Um, I think it's, it's one of my interests. So I really wanted it to be effective, but I couldn't come across that sort of, I want this to be effective because, and only take the ideas that were for it and not against it. And that's how you're going to get those higher grades by coming in with no bias and not making that mistake and just like actually putting the arguments for and against and then being critical about them both, comparing them and deciding which is it, is it good for, is it for but you need to consider this, is it actually not recommended and you need to come on with that critical head or you're just going to lose marks, especially at level seven. I think that was one of the, the huge things for us at the master's level, they're really, really on that. Yeah, not not too much to add. Um, didn't uh, kind of from what Lewis mentioned there about the research and you, as you go through and you uh, learn a bit more about research and you um, in general and databases and all that sort of thing, you do learn start to learn that actually there isn't quite as much um, honesty with uh, papers and things like that. There's a lot more bias involved in things than you might think. Um, a paper might be presented in a way where it looks, uh, you know, a million dollars and there's no bias involved, but there's always bias involved at some level or some capacity at the end of the day, humans writing it. Um, so, yeah, just kind of be mindful. Always look at a paper with a, a bit of more of a sceptic side, a bit more of a sceptic attitude, and then that will really help you to analyse it, pick it apart, uh, dissect it, and then hopefully your analysis or your dissertation will... Will benefit from that. Yeah, definitely, I, I agree with that. Um, so coming sort of towards the end of, I've got a few more questions left. Brad, you mentioned earlier on about how you wanted to focus initially on acute um, stroke, and then that was obviously proven difficult. Do you want to sort of talk through the comparison and the results using VR between a, a acute stroke patients and then your more chronic type patient? Um, yes, yeah, so what I kind of found was that in the acute setting, um, obviously these patients have just had the stroke, they're still kind of getting their bearings on um, what their new function is like and what they're like kind of gauged at. So it tended to be almost a shorter um, time frame for the VR, that might be because you can have like motion sickness or like kind of loss of spatial awareness when you're in VR. Um, so it kind of tended to be on the shorter end, so it kind of ranged from 15 minutes to like up to an hour. Um, and there were some worries about um, patients getting like motion sickness or disorientated or not being able to tolerate the VR, but um, it it was actually found that even with um, semi-immersive um, VR, which is like a screen um, that's big enough to kind of feel like you're in the, immersed in the VR setting, um, nobody really had any um, effects that they couldn't tolerate it. Um, and in the chronic um, like groups, they were going up to two hours, um, especially with the people with aphasia, and they were all tolerating VR fine. 
Um, and then a new study just come out, which I didn't actually include in my review, which looked at fully immersive VR and all the um, patients tolerated that as well from the, the stroke background. So I think it's definitely something that we can look at going forward. Um, in terms of frequency, the acute um, groups tended to have like up to five days a week. So your standard stroke care being five days through the week and then obviously weekends usually um, off. If we could give seven-day care, it would be great, but it's not always um, exact how um, hospital trusts can run. So it was good that they kind of replicated um, that sort of hospital pattern. And as little as a 15 minutes like a day in the like, initial days afterwards was having really good results. Um, so definitely something that could be implemented that way in just like a small increment. Um, and then the more chronic ones were tending to have like twice a week um, just going in so that if you were living in the community, you could go in um, to the hospital twice a week or um, for some of them having like a Nintendo Wii, they could they could be working on that at home and they could do it as, as much as they wanted, as intense as they wanted. So then I suppose kind of wrapping yours up, now that you're a band five, you're, you're obviously doing rotations now. If you had the chance um, to work in Euro, how would you like to see VR sort of implemented into rehab or how would you implement it into your rehab? Um, so just to echo what I said earlier, um, VR should be used alongside traditional therapy. It has great potential for decreasing the psychological impairment and offer some other improvements such as coordination, general function and language, but it shouldn't completely um, replace traditional rehab. Um, I think currently the, like, the drivers of stroke is very functional. So it's all about like, how quickly can we get them walking, can we get them standing, can we get them up? And we can often discharge somebody very quickly if they can walk or if we get to that walking stage, but that doesn't really leave any time for psychological um, sort of consideration. So I think one of the um, studies which I kind of like looked at and thought that that was a way that we could implement it compared to the other ones, which I didn't really think were economically um, going to work was um, a nurse administered VR um, sort of option and I know nurses are overrun as it is but in the acute setting it was 15 minutes two sessions a day one in the a.m. one in the p.m. and if you sort of just employed one person who that was pretty much their job delivering this VR um, therapy. No matter how many patients you had in the ward, 15 minutes a day, which could have such massive implications for their psychological health, their rehab sort of goals and how far they can get because if they're stuck in this like depressive cycle, there's not much that has shown to actually improve that and they can have extended hospital stays, increased mortality, bigger reliance. So if we can input something that's only half an hour a day, 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon, and it can have such a massive effect, I think that would be definitely um, something that we could use for the acute setting. Um, in the chronic phase, I don't really think it's um, like justifiable for hospitals to be able to offer a service 
um, like um, what was kind of in these papers. I just don't think they've got the funds to sort of address all the needs um, for these chronic stroke patients. But a lot of the um, studies were using things like Nintendo Wii, Xbox Connect, and these are things that realistically aren't that much money. If you compare the price of a Nintendo Wii, which is going to be less than £100, to actual stroke rehab in a private setting, that's like one session, one and a half sessions. So I think it's a long-term investment that could definitely have implications for stroke patients at home when they can use that self-rehab, they can do it as much as they want. And if the hospitals or like a general like stroke council could sort of create these um, stroke rehab packages on the games and all these different things that they were using in these studies, if they could make that available to the stroke patients, whether it was free or a slight charge, I think it would be massively financially um, relevant to do that because it's stroke rehab brought to them um, and it could really improve a lot of people's lives. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely agree. And just the movement of technology in the everyday life, it, it makes complete sense to implement it in the rehab um, where we can. So I kind of just come back to you and um, you mentioned earlier on about sort of the lack of conclusiveness um, with functional screening in itself and that there's just such a there's just such a wide variety of screening initially and then how you implement that tends to be quite sort of personal that there isn't really that this is exactly what you do and uh, uh, granted that a lot of this is because the difficulty with it is prediction and people are trying to work out what's the best way to predict it but that lack of conclusiveness do you think that lends itself to such a wide variety of tests in, in itself and in that if you went into one club, the functional screen that you would find there is probably going to be different to any other club around that. What, why do you think that is? Yeah, uh, uh, it's a good question. Um, I think it probably lends itself more to the complexity of the different movements that an athlete will complete in their sport but also to the complexity of the number of different uh, quantitative ways that we can measure the athlete, um, you know, whether it be heart rate, distance jumped on one leg, or even how much relative valgus they have on a tuck jump. Um, I think it's hard to draw conclusions on the athlete's risk of injury if you aren't sure what part of their body or what physical or psychological metric you need to measure. Um, so, yeah, that's probably what I'd have to say on that. Yeah. And then... I suppose if if you were going through a functional screening process with an athlete, knowing what you know, having done this piece of research, what things would you be sort of putting as your sort of, you must implement it, you know, you should implement it and then sort of lesser down? Uh, I think definitely being repeatable in the testing so if you're doing a whole team make sure that you doing them on the same day or uh you know in the am pm or even doing them back-to-back -back days um so that the player that you're testing has got a similar amount of load applied to them you know they've trained a similar to the other their, the teammate um making sure that any cues that you're giving to the player are similar 
you know the equipment you use in the position in the equipment um if the player's doing a tuck jump making sure it's on the same surface making sure they've all got shoes and socks off if if that's the way you're going to do it just make sure it's repeatable because we know that um sort of the, the reliability of the testing like i've mentioned isn't that great as it is so if you can minimize the amount of extra um sort of involvement in terms of differences make sure that it's completely repeatable on your part then you've done everything you can to make sure that that screening method that you're carrying out is repeatable as possible um so yeah and so i suppose then really even if the the actual validity of the test and isn't you know a hundred percent the fact that you're able to repeat that same test whether that's you know, pre-season, post-injury, midway season, just the fact that you can do it consistently and monitor the changes, that that's the most important thing. Yeah, 100%. I'd agree with that, yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Lads, any last sort of remarks you want to make before we close this up? Um, one thing I did just want to touch on was limitations. So um, you're going to be asked to comment on the limitations of your own literature review and also comment on the, the limitations of um, the research that you've been looking at. So like for me, a VR intervention could only be single-blinded because the patient knows that they're doing VR. So that's like sort of things that, although single-blind might not be the best way that we can go, you need to like understand that that's the only way they can do it. There, there isn't a way that you can put someone in a VR environment and then not know that they are in that VR environment, that they're not in the, the other um, study group. So you need to have that awareness of, although it's not ideal, there was no other way. And that holds yeah. less significance um, than just going, oh, it was only single-blinded. Uh, another thing that I found, which kind of comes on to Connor's chat about a meta-analysis, was the standardized outcome measures. Um, every single one of my papers had a different outcome measure. And like I was looking at studies that were trying to compare if these two outcome measures could be compared against each other, even if they were both for depression, and there was just no correlation between the outcome measures. So it, although one, one outcome measure is saying that there's a reduction in depression and then a different study has got a different outcome measure and they're saying there's no reduction, it made it a very difficult thing to compare. So mm. I think for going forward, we need to put, like, just look at some sort of standardized outcome measures that will make research just so much easier because everyone's using the same standardized outcome measures. And on that uh, same standardized point, um, standardized, standardized time frames. this um, really caused me a lot of trouble because I had two papers that both had um, both had patients around the seven weeks mark. One of them said they were subacute. One of them said they were acute. There's no actual standardised time frames for um, what each stage is. So I kind of had to really dig into that and find loads of different references and come up with my own standardised time frames. But still, kind of like that paper is published. Um, its results saying that it's an acute population, even though I think acute should only be zero to 14 days and it's seven weeks down the line. You still need to, like, that, that paper has said it's acute, therefore it's acute. You can't change what they've done because it doesn't suit you. So you need to kind of acknowledge it, but you can't change what the paper said. You just need to 
acknowledge it. And then um, within my research, obviously, we're a sole researcher, so you should definitely be saying that there's lots of um, limitations there, although working with your supervisor, working with the subject librarian, working with anyone else that's helped you put that in, because that means that you've actually sought help from other people. It's not going to take away from your grade. It's actually going to boost it, because you're now taking away bias because you haven't done anything. Uh, done everything, sorry. Um, the sign grading system, like Connor said earlier, is subjective. So if I graded something, if Connor graded it, if Lewis graded it, we could all get a different grade. So it's not exact, it doesn't have exact parameters. Um, and then the sort of meta-analysis sort of thing that you said before as well, Connor, there's so much heterogeneity in the research, they're all using, looking at different things with different populations. Um, with different outcome measures, so we can't conduct a meta-analysis. So they're sort of the limitations that you could be thinking about putting in um, for your your thesis. And there's obviously lots of other things that you consider, but don't, I think, generally just say how it is. Don't try and like cover anything up. Just be open, honest, and that's how you're going to reach the higher grade boundaries by saying everything that you've done and why you've done it. Yeah, and then some kind of broader pieces of advice for anyone who, you know, is going to be doing a, a dissertation soon or a thesis soon. Um, let the research guide the specific topic. If you know you've got an area of something you're really interested in, let the research dictate what specific topic you're going to do in that area. Don't force it. Um, otherwise, it won't kind of come out as good as you want it to be and it won't be as relevant to what's out there. And it sounds a bit cliche, but take breaks. You know, if you've been writing for a couple of hours, come away from it, um, you know, do something else, think about something else, and then come back to it. it, it what, what comes back out on the page will be better for doing it, and it might not seem that, but um, obviously if you're on a roll and you're, you're typing away, crack on. But if, if it's not coming out quite as quickly as, as it was, step away. Um, seek help if you're, if you're stuck. I'm sure whatever uni you're at, your lecturers are going to be more than happy to help. Your supervisor is going to be more than happy to help. You know, they've been through it before, so um, there's no sort of stupid question. Don't feel like there is. Um, and then, yeah, like I mentioned again, so often something that I found personally was you spend so much time looking at that document when you're typing that your own words go blurry on the page. <laughs> I think we, me and Brad spoke about this earlier. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> having time away... Uh, and coming back and reading what you've written can really help with the quality of what you've written, making sense of what you've written. Um, you know, obviously you'll be planning and things, but having time away, thinking about something, coming back to it and reading it will help you to unblur that. Um, so yeah, there's just sort of a, a little bit yeah. of a personal touch. I just add to that as well. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have somebody else that can read it. Um, whether that's a friend, another student, you read mine, I'll read yours sort of thing, um, definitely do because I know for me, I can write a sentence and I read that and it makes perfect sense and then someone else can read it and be like, what are you on about? That, that sentence has no structure, it doesn't get to the point, but in my head, because I've got all the information about this subject in my head, that sentence makes full sense, but someone who doesn't have all the information, they haven't a clue what I'm on about, so I need to actually look at that again and make sure that I'm, I'm writing so that my reader can understand what I'm doing. Yeah, there's some brilliant tips of advice that I'm sure people out there would pay for. So they're getting there for free, so that's brilliant. 
Um, we'll wrap it up there then. So that's episode 21 of the Student Physio Podcast complete. Um, you can like and subscribe on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Equally, you can follow us on all social media platforms at Physio Podcast One. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now.